Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of God from Matthew 26, 36 to 40. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of those things that is unique in our culture, and I'm sure you would agree with me, is a dreadful part of our culture is our epidemic of mass shootings. Seems like for whatever reason, we know whatever reasons there are, they're, they're very sinful and evil reasons, that people become copycats in that way, and it becomes one after another, and it even seems recently more often. Every week, even multiple times a week, we hear about places where a mass shooting took place, and it's an evil and dreadful part of our culture. And I was listening to Timothy Keller recently remarking about two incidents of mass shootings, but two very unique ones that happened in American Christian communities of faith. And these weren't too long ago. You might remember the West Nickel Mines Amish School in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, where several people were shot in the school. And then in 2015, at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, during the middle of a worship service, many people were shot and killed. And what Timothy Keller was remarking on was not the incident itself, but the aftermath. That in both of those cases, there were Christian communities, people who follow Christ. One incident took place in a Christian school, another in a church. In both cases, they came out immediately after and publicly said, we forgive the person who did this. We want it to be known that because Christ has forgiven us, we forgive the person who came in and, and brought about this awful tragedy and took the lives of people that we love dearly. We forgive them. Keller goes on to ask, again speaking of both the event in Pennsylvania and South Carolina, how is this even possible? How is it possible that a group of people or even just individuals would say, I forgive the assailant who took the lives of my loved ones. Keller concludes, it is only in and through the love of Christ that this is possible. And also with a, a deep awareness that we have that Christ is our example and Christ died for his enemies. Because of who Christ is, because of what He's done, because of who He has called us to be, even that deep, inexplicable level of forgiveness is possible. So today, Christ is our example. And He identified for us two great commands, the greatest of all the commands, that if we believe them, if we follow them, if we put them into practice, we can fulfill all of the law and all of the words spoken through the prophets to the people of God. Today, Christ is our example. But to understand 
the context of this passage, we need to go back a couple of verses and see what had happened in the first place. What happened back in verse 34 is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had teamed up. Now I know oftentimes in church, we mention the Sadducees and the Pharisees together. Get it out of your mind that they were friends, okay? The Sadducees and the Pharisees did not like each other. They did not believe the same things about the Scripture. They did not believe many of the same things about God. And each was convinced that they were completely right and the other was completely wrong. Yet here, they team up together. And it's a reminder, watch out when the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together. Watch out when when two groups who are usually diametrically opposed to each other, each claiming to speak for God, find a common enemy. Reminds us of the old axiom, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in this case, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have decided their common enemy is Jesus Christ. We see this happen still today. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, sometimes they'll team up. They don't like each other. They disagree with each other. They've done everything they could throughout time to undercut each other, but all of a sudden they find a common enemy and they're together. We see this happen in our culture on the left. We see this happen in our culture on the right. And sometimes it even happens in the church. So we always have to ask ourselves, if the Pharisees and the Sadducees are teaming up and they're calling somebody their common enemy, who is that and why? And this is incredibly hard for us to discern, to discern, right? Because we, we're not sure who we should trust. We're not sure, sure who is right or what is right. And so I found helpful for myself, if, if I see the Pharisees and the Sadducees teaming up, or if, if I can't make sense out of a debate or an argument, especially when the name of God or the name of Jesus is invoked, I look for two things. First of all, I look for the fruit of the Spirit. Who speaking, who proclaiming is demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If somebody is claiming to speak by the Spirit and to speak for the Lord, but there is no fruit of the Spirit, I'm suspect immediately. The second thing I look for is... Is the person speaking and acting in a Christ-like manner? They're they're related to each other. The fruit of the Spirit, a Christ-like manner. If you're going to claim to speak for God, if you're going to claim to be a person of Christ, then your speech and your action should look like Christ. In this case, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are neither. They've teamed up together, but notice what's happened. Jesus has already silenced the Sadducees. They tried to confront him and confuse him with a question. His answer, his response left them silent. And so now it's the Pharisees' turn to take their shot. And as they take their shot to ask Jesus a question, they pull out probably what they thought was their best weapon, a lawyer, an expert in the law. And the expert in the law asked Jesus the simple question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Today's message is as simple as I can make it. There are only two points. And if you miss these two points, you're not paying attention because you're going to hear them a lot. They're simple and they're easy. 
They're the two commandments that Jesus gave us and made clear. The first and the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with your entire being. And it's interesting here that when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, he doesn't choose either from the Ten Commandments. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. We call this passage the Shema. The Shema is the most commonly prayed prayer of the Jewish people. This was true in Jesus' day and it's still true for the Orthodox Jews today. This Hebrew prayer was memorized from the earliest age. Your goal as a good Hebrew Jewish person was to pray the Shema every morning when you woke up, to pray the Shema before every meal, to pray the Shema before you went to bed at night. If you were able, if it was possible, your goal was to pray the Shema as your last words on earth, on your deathbed. You wanted to say to God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And so Jesus basically goes to the John 3.16 of the Hebrew Scriptures. The central text, the one they knew best. The first and greatest commandment is from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You heard this earlier in worship. But notice again what God said to His people in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. He didn't just say, I want you to know this. He didn't just say, I want you to memorize this or pray this every day. He said, these commandments that I give you are to be on your hearts. That's what it's all about. This is to be on your heart. This is to be your heart. And as these commandments are on your hearts, we're called to pass them on. Imprint them, impress them on your children. Wherever you go, whether you sit at home, whether you're on the road, whether you're lying down, whether you're getting up, these commandments are to be on your hearts and on your lips. Tie them as symbols on your hands, on your foreheads. Put them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. As you come and go, wherever you go, remember, love the Lord your God with every part of your being, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and greatest command is to love the Lord our God with our entire being. I love what the ancient Christian Clement of Alexandria said. He was a, a pivotal church leader. And many of his sermons and, and writings can still be read today. He said the first commandment prepares the way for the second. For the person who is grounded in the love of God clearly also loves his neighbor in all things himself. This is the kind of person who fulfills these two commandments and experiences all the commandments. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two. But today's message, what's on my heart, is to spend the bulk of our time on the second command. Not because it's more important, it's certainly not. But because I believe it's a message we can't hear enough in this cultural moment. The second great command is to love your neighbor as yourself. What I'm doing these next few Sundays, we're not actually in a series. I'm going to start a new series as we begin the, the summer, but there have been several passages that in my own devotional time, when I've been reading and studying, I've come across and said, I, I really just want to preach on that one text at some point, not the whole book, 
And this one for me has been timely. And as you'll hear before we're done, it's a message that I need to hear right now as well. The second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I love what John Calvin said. He said, what every man's mind ought to be towards his neighbor could not be better expressed in many pages than in this one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second great command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But some of you may think this morning that I'm, I'm splitting hairs a little bit in what I'm going to say next. But my intention is not to split hairs. My intention is that we don't miss or mistake what it is that Jesus actually said here. Because it's so important that we don't miss it. And, and here's how it's going to feel like I'm splitting hairs. I'll often hear people summarize the two great commandments as saying this, love God and love people. And, and that sounds great. It sounds great to say, boy, if we could just get that under control, love God and love people, then we'd be doing well. But, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say love God and love people. He said love God and love your neighbor. And I want you to see this morning how those are two different things. They're, they're very different words in the Hebrew and the Greek. The, the words for people, are, are they're all inclusive, yes, but they're big words. And they can easily be very general words. Where we might be tempted to say something like, well, yes, I love God, and of course I love people. I love people. I want to be the kind of person who loves people. Or, or we might say, if we're more honest, I try to love people. I try to, to do my best to be loving and kind and to love people. The word neighbor, though, is a much different word. It is very general in the sense that it is all-inclusive. It means everyone. But the word neighbor is used so frequently in both the Hebrew and the Greek in the Bible in many cases where it identifies specifically, oh, by the way, this person is also your neighbor. If I say I love God and I love people, I might still know in my heart there's an exception. I may, might say, well, well, in general, yes, I'm a loving guy and I love people, but not that guy, right? Or not, not that person, or not that type of person. But the Bible does an awful lot of talking about neighbor and specifically saying that person is your neighbor, this kind of person is your neighbor, that I don't think it was a mistake when Jesus didn't say love people, he said love your neighbor. Because sometimes it's easier to love people in general than it is to love your neighbor right next door. Or to love the person that you know has it in for you. Or to love the person that you know thinks everything about you is wrong. Or maybe is seeking to destroy everything that you think is right. Again, Jesus wasn't quoting the, the Ten Commandments here. The first great commandment comes from Deuteronomy 6. The second one... Love your neighbor as yourself comes from a completely different place. It comes from Leviticus 19. And if you read through Leviticus 19, what you'll find is that lots of different people are mentioned along with the word neighbor. Lots of specific types of people, groups of people are mentioned, starting with your mother and father. That we might be tempted to think our neighbor is always someone outside of our community, but God made clear all throughout both the Old and New Testament, your parents 
are your neighbor. You are to love them as yourself, no matter how old they get or how old you get. That relationship is still key. And on and on throughout Leviticus 19, this word neighbor comes up and specific people are mentioned. Here in the chapter, I'm going to jump to verse 9. Leviticus gets very specific about actions we are to take that demonstrate our love for our neighbor. And this command is very specific. And it's about reaping and harvesting. This, is, this comes from an agrarian culture where their currency was not money or coins. It was food. It was grain. It was produce. And God told his people consistently, this is not the only place. When you reap the harvest of your land, leave the edges of your field untouched. Do not reap the edges of your field so that maybe somebody coming through, specifically here, he says, the poor or the foreigner who are your neighbor, when they come into your field, they'll know they can go to the edges and find something to eat. Maybe the only thing that they'll be able to find to eat. But God also said, I want you to leave your gleanings. And this is a picture we have to see. When a Hebrew person would go into their fields and they would, would cut off the produce from their crop, they, they would cut with one hand and they would catch what would fall with the other. And so the gleanings were everything that you missed. Everything that spilled out over your hand as you were cutting, you leave the gleanings behind so that too might be found by a stranger in need. I had to laugh as I was kind of thinking about this in my mind and thinking about the, the miserly person. You know, we would call them a penny pincher. I'm imagining that miserly person among the Hebrew people figuring out exactly how to hold their hands so they never drop anything, right? I'm going to make sure I get it all today. But if the gleanings fell to the ground, Leviticus says, as an action item, leave them for your neighbor. Some more actions towards your neighbor. These sound an awful lot like the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't hold back the wages that you owe even to a hired overnight worker. Don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear the Lord. Don't pervert justice. Don't pervert justice by showing favoritism either to the poor or to the rich. Treat everyone fairly, just as the Lord your God has done for you. Do not go about spreading slander. And do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. But from actions and speech, then the next two verses speak to the attitudes of our heart. And this, by the way, these are the verses Jesus quoted. This is where Jesus actually quoted Leviticus 19.18. Because it's possible that you could say, well, I've never done those harmful things to my neighbor. You could start checking off the boxes. I've never stolen from them. I've never lied about them. And you could even have so much self-control and discipline that you bite your tongue and you never say out loud what you're thinking or what's on your heart. But what God said to his people is it's not just about your speech and your actions. It's about the attitude of your heart. And in your heart, you are not to hate your fellow Israelite. Don't hate your neighbor. And if you need to rebu rebuke your neighbor, do it fairly. In other words, make things right. 
so that you're not guilty as they are of having that hatred and bitterness in your heart. Do not seek revenge. Don't bear a grudge against anyone. Instead, and here's what Jesus quoted, the only positive command in the bunch, everything else is do not, but do, God said, and Jesus said as the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say love people. He said love your neighbor. And this picture is important because it means something. Another explanation of this word in the Hebrew that will have some meaning to you, I hope, is the name of one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Ruth. Ruth, if you'll remember, was not born in Israel. She was a Moabite. So her real name was probably not Ruth. That was the Hebrew name she was given. And Ruth has as its root the word ra'ah, and the word ra'ah is the word neighbor. So what did folks call good old Ruth? They called her neighbor. She came from over there next door in Moab. But you'll also remember that when Ruth came into the community, she was widowed. She couldn't provide for herself. She was a poor, foreign woman who became a resident alien. And yet the folks called her neighbor. Ruth eventually married Boaz. She became a, a citizen of the Israelite community. And she now is in the bloodline of David and Jesus. Look at the great love that God showed to the woman whose name literally meant neighbor. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. This is an attitude of the heart. Yes, our actions are important. Yes, our words matter. But the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know that some of us in the room, probably especially some of us guys, after a while we get a little tired of this love, love, love stuff all the time, right? In fact, in the early service, you may know that our children, they, they're given little activity sheets when they come in. Some of you grown-ups might like to have those where they can draw. And, and at the bottom, there are words that come from the passage, and they're supposed to check off how many times the word is said. And little Braylon Smith in the early service informed me that I said love 63 times. So, so are we getting the message? The two points are pretty simple. The word is simple. I know we get tired of it. Love, 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 like love solves everything. But, but when we have the two commandments in the right order, it does. When we love the Lord our God with every part of our being, when we are filled with His holiness and we experience His love in such a way that it's not just inside us, but it's flowing out of us, then we can love our neighbor. If we get it in the wrong order, if everything's always about love, 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 love people, love people, never tell anybody they're wrong, then we've missed the first commandment, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love the Lord, you love His Word, and you love His commands, and you want to be obedient to Him because He is your heavenly Father whom you want to please. And living in that kind of loving relationship with God, it is altogether possible to love as Jesus taught and modeled. And as when we take Leviticus 19 and we put it together with all of Jesus' other teaching, we find out there are no exceptions. Neighbor is used for young and old. Neighbor is used for man and woman. Neighbor is used for Jew and not Jew. Neighbor is used for insider and outsider, rich and poor, 
healthy and sick, indebted and free, friend and enemy. And Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If we don't get this right, we get nothing right. If we don't love God with all of our being and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, and as God loves our neighbor, we get nothing right. And listen, here's my part of my role as a shepherd in this church, and I've told you this before, is not to get so distracted by all of the cultural failures in these areas around us and all those who we might think seek to do us harm or harm to our way of life that we forget to look inside here and inside here. Have we ever lived in a, in a time culturally where there's more hate, more outspoken hate? I cannot remember a time in my life where I have been told to be mad so much and to stay mad. And if I not, have not been mad long enough about this thing, then I need to get mad about this new thing. And here's where this really gets hard. To remember my call to love my neighbor is also to love those people who are always telling me I'm supposed to be mad. And love those people who are always telling me who I'm supposed to hate next. And again, those messages, they come from us from every angle, whether you agree with it or not. They come from every angle. And if we're not careful, they end up in settings like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no exceptions Yet we too fall into that trap of wanting to redefine the word. We want to find a loophole. It's easier to love people than to love your neighbor. We want to be like the ancient people who, when Jesus was confronted later on by another lawyer, want to justify. They want to get a strict definition of neighbor to justify themselves and even ask the question to Jesus himself, who is my neighbor? Of course, you know here I'm talking about the moment when Jesus told maybe his most famous parable. It's either the prodigal son or it's in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's in this context where these two commands have been mentioned. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That one of these lawyers, one of these experts in the law says, but who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells a story where the hero the good guy, the one who demonstrates and exemplifies loving his neighbor, is the very kind of person that Jesus' own people had been conditioned to hate the most. He was a Samaritan. Samaritans weren't good in the minds of the people of Judah. They had been in a centuries-old conflict. Bloodshed had, been, had happened on both sides. This was deep-seated hatred, and Jesus says Samaritans can be good too. Samaritans can do what's right as well. Jesus tells this story, and he finishes by saying, Now you go and do likewise. People were constantly looking for loopholes in the law. There's an ancient Hebrew document called the Mishnah. It's hundreds of pages of teachings of rabbis, many of whom lived during Jesus' time. And you'll find throughout the Mishnah, time and again, loopholes to break the law because your neighbor is now too poor and you weren't prepared. Or your neighbor did this, or your neighbor did that. Or your neighbor supported this, or your neighbor supported that. And now there's a loophole and they're not your neighbor anymore. Jesus 
destroys all of that. And he leaves us with no exception. So as we bring things to a close this morning, here's where I'm going to get transparent. Here's where I'm going to be honest about myself. As I think about the story of the Good Samaritan, I've struggled to love my neighbor in every single category that Jesus mentioned. I've struggled in the past to love the wounded dying man on the road who was attacked by robbers. Loving and and serving a hurting person might cost me something. There's risk involved. What if that dying man is not actually injured? What if he's faking it? And when I go to help, his buddies are going to jump out and rob me. Now I'm the victim. There have been times in my life where I've struggled to love the person that takes risk. There have also been times where I've struggled to love the Samaritan. I don't like being around the person who's different than me. I like people who think like me. I like people who are right and think like me. I've struggled with the Samaritan. But over time, the Lord has brought that to a new place. I've struggled with people who I might think are hostile towards me. The Lord's helped me walk through that. It's not perfect, but He's helped me walk through it. But let me tell you where I am today. Who I struggle with today are the other two who are in the story, the priest and the Levite. Those religious people who should have known better who saw the injured man and they went out of their way to cross on the other side and to not help him. Of course, the the priest and the Levite represent those Pharisees and Sadducees. And I struggle at times to remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees are my neighbor too. The people who act religious, who bring shame onto the name of Christ and to the church, they're also my neighbor. And I cannot find a place in my heart to justify hating them any more than I used to struggle with the wounded person or the Samaritan. It's hard. It's hard to love your neighbor when you know your neighbor is misrepresenting. It's hard to love your neighbor when your neighbor does attack you personally, does look to undercut you. Yet Jesus is saying, even here, put all of his teaching together. Look at the grace he tried to show time and again to even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Even they are your neighbor. So today, since I've been vulnerable and honest with you, I want to ask you if you'd be willing to do the same thing. When it comes to God, today, ask yourself, honestly, does He have my whole heart? Every part of me, my soul, mind, strength, does He have my whole being? And do you love God with every part of your being? Wasn't it amazing to watch an entire household this morning say, the love of God is in us and Jesus is Lord. Have you made that decision and and does the Lord have your entire heart? If God does have your whole heart, then the love you have for Him should flow into your neighbor. And I believe today that He can give all of us even love for those that we're tempted to fear, those who might seek to do us harm, And listen, even those who have done us harm. When Jesus talked about loving our enemies, you know what he said next? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, if you can get to that place where you even love your enemy, you will be reflecting the love of your heavenly Father in a very unique way. When it comes to loving our neighbor, 
We need only to look to the example of Jesus, just as we began. To his teaching, but also the way he modeled, whether he came across young or old, man or woman, Christian or not, insider or outsider, rich or poor, healthy or sick, indebted or free, friend or enemy. Jesus modeled this neighborly love so that we don't just have to hear his words today, but we can follow in his steps. So today, the, the closing line and the commission and the invitation for all of us is simply what Jesus said. Go and do likewise.